Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Let's pray. I can, Lord, see the look on people's faces as to why verse 6 is in the context. And so that'll be fun to deal with. But Lord, I thank you for your word. I could only wish that I had sat at your feet as you delivered this message in the historical context, Lord, and the culture in which you gave it. And, uh, and to conclude with the people that you spoke with authority, unlike the rabbis. Lord, I pray that your authority in this text would, would really dawn upon our hearts that we would become sensitive, that we would become aware of ourselves and not so aware of others, but that we could see clearly about ourselves, be repentant and walk before you in a way that honors you, Lord, and then in turn becomes a blessing to others. So Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Let's look at verse one. Judge not that you be not judged. How many of you guys have ever used this verse in a way that you knew you should not have used it? Of course, I don't mean like when you used it, but hindsight, after you've grown in maturity and realized that Jesus didn't install that in the text as a weapon. Nobody raised, okay, one hand. This humble person should stand. (laughs) Not long ago, uh, and it may still be the case, but... Somebody, I don't know if it was Barna or whoever did it, but they did a poll on, you know, what is the most commonly, frequently quoted verse in Western culture? Guess what verse it was? Well, I thought that it was something like, you know, do unto others, because you hear that once in a while, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. But no, it was was this particular verse. Uh, The church loves it. Uh, And the world loves it. And uh, now, it's not because people typically, if you're like me, you're not trying to use it as some valuable lesson to improve human relationships uh, or reduce conflict between people. Uh, Typically, it's quite the opposite. This passage is most often quoted for two reasons. To minimize sinful behavior, behavior and personal responsibility and to shame those who would dare point out your sin. Understandably, I mean, uh, of course, I mean, I've, like yesterday, I learned to appreciate people confronting me in my sin. I've grown all these years, it's taken so long. But who likes to be confronted? Who likes to be told that they're wrong? And so we are masters at reading the scriptures and finding something like this to turn things around, aren't we? I saw a shirt at the, the conference yesterday, or maybe it was Friday, 
but it said, I can do all things through a text that is taken out of context. Did you see that, that shirt? That is so good. I mean, it's really bad, but it really is, that's just the way that human nature is. So in regards to the first one, you know, this, using this text to minimize my own sin and personal responsibility, people really, they will use this verse to get out of sin. They will use it to justify sinful conduct, whether it's their own or whether it's someone else's. Our culture has become very good at defending the sins of other people. They leverage the language of this verse, but not just the language, they love it that Jesus was the one that said it. So they leverage his authority as well in hopes of normalizing and dismissing conduct or belief that is morally bad. It's a desperate attempt to diminish the guilt of sin and responsibility. And second, by quoting this verse, they simultaneously shame the one who pointed out their sin with the intent of just shutting them up. If people would just shut up and stop talking to me about my sin, oh, but now I have a text. I have biblical authority. I have Jesus' authority to tell them to be quiet. Yeah. So the guilty person, instead of humbling themselves, instead of confessing their sin, they use this verse to call their accuser a sinner for accusing them. They use this verse to justify judging the judge. You, did you catch that? Yeah. This, the whole while saying it's wrong to judge others while they judge the judge who judged them. They don't use the verse to be fair. People don't use this verse to level the playing field. They wield this logical fallacy to avoid guilt and accountability and to slay their opponent. They're not looking for an impasse. They weaponize the text to deliver a blow that the accuser cannot recover from. And then that liberates them to feel justified in their sin. <clears throat> so it's kind of like a, I mean, it's a useful verse. It's like a shield and it's like a sword. You can deflect accusation and then you can stab those that accuse you. <laughs> it's like a, it's just the perfect weapon. And couples fight this way in the home. It's completely unfair. Maybe you've played the game with your spouse lately. Not a virtue, by the way. Now, of course, as you know, this isn't the only passage of scripture that's used to dismiss sin while condemning those who point it out. This verse and others like it have been, uh, well, I don't know how many times it's been thrown in my face in ministry uh, to make me feel bad for addressing sin in the congregation. Uh, I'm certain that I've employed similar tactics to avoid accountability or to get back at those that have called me out. <laughs> It's crazy, human nature, isn't it? When we should just own our sin, confess it, repent, and then go apologize to the person that did us the favor by pointing it out, we just get me. So all that aside, is this popular understanding and use of the passage the correct one? Is that what Jesus meant? Is that what he meant? Certainly not. Some would even turn to this section of scripture to demonstrate that it's wrong for a church to exercise church discipline on the unrepentant sinner because they say it's wrong to judge. The worst crime in their, uh, from their perspective is to judge others for sin, to confront sin. According to them, there is no circumstance under which we may address someone's sin unless we're rebuking the person who addressed sin. So again, they are judging others for being judgmental, proving that they actually believe in at least one context 
where it's okay to judge others. That's when they've been judged, which then makes them the only qualified person to pass judgment. I always ask the question, why is it when I judge, I'm self-righteous, but when you judge, it's okay? Most people say, I don't know what you mean. Well, let's start over then. (laughs) To them, the greatest sin is to confront sin. But you have to understand it. If Jesus meant this statement that way, as people insist, we could never be judicial about anything, anything. We could not judge a pedophile as disqualified to work with children because that would be judgmental, okay? We could not criticize human traffickers for what they do because that would be passing judgment. If this is what Jesus meant, it would remove every level of accountability, merit, and moral qualifications. We would just have to take, you know, like 2 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elders, and Titus 1, and just remove it from the Bible, because all of those qualifications would make a distinction between people, and it would judge one is unworthy and another is worthy, which is the point of the passage. But we can't have that stuff, because the worst sin of all is to point sin out. Yeah, it would just be ludicrous. But that's not what Jesus meant. It's certainly not what he practiced, right? Yeah. The word here for judge means to discriminate. It does to make a distinction, to, to distinguish between good and between evil, good and bad. Our word for critic actually comes from this Greek word. But here in the context, Jesus is referring to unjust criticism. That is, prejudgment in the absence of evidence. Okay? He's confronting self-righteous people who would look down on others, condescending others for not, typically, for not being like them. You remember uh, My Fair Lady. It's, it's one of the only musicals I can stand in this, this planet. <sighs> I don't know what people's affiliation is with musicals, but I just, I tr- I've tried, okay? And singing your way through life is just weird. So if you like musicals, I, I'm not, I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> but in My Fair Lady, the 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 linguistic specialist, or whatever he is, he's, he's arrogant, right? He's, he's in, completely intolerable. And the way he talks to the, the woman, and he sings that ridiculous song, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a, a Man? <laughs> and, but then he ends the song with, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like Me? Me. You see, that is the epitome of judging others, the way that Jesus is talking about. It's looking down upon others, down our nose, condescending them because they're really not like me. Because after all, my personality is the best personality. My perspective is always the wisest. The way that I do things, the way that I, whatever. Whatever it is, it's better than yours. And so I have the right to look down my nose at you. It's weird, isn't it? But every one of us in the room do that. It's, It's just yucky, yeah. It's unloving. You know, you cannot love others as yourself by looking down at them like that, right? You can't do unto others as you would have them do to you by condescending like, like that. It's nuts, yeah. So Jesus is addressing those who are judgmental. Uh, in, our, in our culture, that's the better word for it. Uh, we would say, they're so judgmental. They're so negative. They're so critical about everything. They're like our pastor who constantly complains about the clouds, the brain. I can criticize and condemn the weather all I want. <laughs> but people do this. They do it with people's behavior. They do it with people's looks, their habits, 
but they do it without knowing the necessary facts required to judge someone as ungodly or unworthy or inappropriate or, or whatever. It's unjustified, unwarranted. <clears throat> Consider Jesus' words here in John 7. He says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Wow. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Somebody threw Matthew 7 verse 1 into my face a couple months ago. I didn't throw this verse in their face. I just tossed it. It was a loving, I pitched it, you know, consider this. They were being really mean to me, okay? And I was feeling a little defensive. (laughs) So, you know, judging someone based upon the way they look or, um, or what we think we see, our perception, it's unfair. It's unjust discrimination. The appearance of someone may provide information. Isn't that true? I mean, we look at someone, we're instantly gathering information, aren't we? The way they look, the way they comb their hair, the way they don't comb their hair, which is cool these days. You know, 30 years ago, it was lazy. Now, it's trendy. See? So who are you to judge? You don't know which one they are. (laughs) The way someone looks may provide information, but... It is, by, it is by no means does it justify our suspicions. It doesn't confirm a stereotype, does it? It doesn't. It's like prejudging someone for having a tattoo or uh, wearing their ball cap backwards or sideways. I think it's weird to do that because I have this uh, picture of a guy at a baseball game and he has his ball cap on backwards and he's just being blinded by the sun. <laughs> John and James both warn about judging between the rich and the poor based upon the clothes they wear. Okay? The prophet Samuel was rebuked by God for judging people by their exterior. I mean, there's that solemn moment where you know, Jesse is bringing all of his boys in to figure out which one is to be anointed the next king of Israel. And Isaiah the prophet is totally caught up in what everybody else is caught up in. He's looking at David's older brother and he's like, yeah, buddy, he's tall, he has broad shoulders, he looks like he can handle himself. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God is just scratching his head. (laughs) You know, if it were up to Samuel to choose the next king of Israel, we would not have gotten David. We would have not gotten the Psalms. We wouldn't have had that crazy victory against Goliath. There was so much more we would have missed out on. But God looks deeper into the heart of man to the very seed of his will and his motives. And from there, God passes judgment and makes decisions. Sammy, on the other hand, was doing other things. God was looking for a man that was after his heart. And Sammy was just looking for a robust warrior. But God knew best. Yeah. He realized that that was the same opinion about Saul, and he was a train wreck of a, of a, of a leader. He was all facade. He was a mess. He was, he was proud and arrogant. He was self-willed, self-centered. He was insecure. But then there was David the boy who just trusted the Lord. Yeah, appearances are deceiving. Stereotypes are inconclusive. And, and mind you, there are such a thing as stereotypes because they're, they're typically true. But as culture changes so quickly, guess what? We cannot be as sure of stereotypes as we've been in the past. Things are changing. Things are different. 
Stereotypes are not universal. A person's appearance may be simply a matter of circumstance, culture, or personality, preference. They may have no moral implications whatsoever. What does that mean? Well, the tattoo may not be a symbol of rebellion. Now, when I was growing up in Wyoming, I mean, if you think it's conservative here, we would see a tattoo and we thought, surely they were a biker and they, were, they killed people, you know? And yeah, tattoos back then were more taboo, you know? But today I find myself looking at some body art, whatever they call it today, and, and I'm like, that is amazing. Now, I don't know what you think about tattoos. I don't care. I see tattoos and I appreciate them. In fact, I love it when people have tattoos because I know that that means something to them. And so I ask them about it and I use it as an opportunity to go into the gospel. Same reason I like to see people with crosses and, and certain kinds of jewelry, you know. But just because they have a tattoo, it's not a symbol of rebellion. It doesn't mean they're in a gang. It doesn't mean they have an affiliation with the occult. It, it, for them, who knows what it is, an expression of art, a memorial. How many people in our church have a tattoo that is a memorial to Christ? I mean, I, I mean Isaac has, he has Trinity uh, tattoos on his calves. And it was like a week after I'd met him, I saw him in Costco and he was walking away and, and I said, man, I'd recognize those legs anywhere. <laughs> and he just stops, you know. <laughs> and uh, we've been friends ever since. So, <laughs> you know, the ball cap. I remember an older gentleman coming to me and, <clears throat> and just complaining about young people that wear ball caps backwards, that it is the symbol of youth rebellion. Well, I just thought that it looked silly, you know, so I was a little caught off guard by that. But then getting to know people that actually wear their hats backwards, I realized some of them were just welders. <laughs> it's their preference, you know, wear your hat how you want. Whatever someone is doing that is not what you do, it, it may be of no moral consequence or significance. And it may, but prejudgment is unjust. You know, don't be lazy, put some time in, investigate you might be surprised. And so if we judge people as immoral or rebellious or inappropriate when there is no moral malady, it is us who has actually acted immorally for passing judgment. So be careful, be careful, passing judgment without good reason. Did you hear me, what I just said? So that implies that there's good reasons to judge people. Yeah. Uh, Jesus commands us to judge, but how should we do it? He says righteously. It's on the screen. Do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment to do it justly. What is righteous judgment? When is it appropriate or necessary to pass judgment on people? Well, I'm going to leave that to Jesus for later. Uh, it's in our chapter. For now, I want to stay on track. Is that okay? I don't mean that to be a, a cliffhanger, but you're thinking people. It'll actually come at the end of our section a little bit. Uh, so let's look back at, at chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Okay, so embedded in Jesus' statement is this. What comes around goes around, right? What comes around goes around. If we criticize with unjust criticism, we will face criticism. And it seems to be that God will ensure that. Now, and, and by the way, that's good for us to, if we mistreat someone uh, and it comes back around to us, we get to feel the pain that other people experience that is unjust. And hopefully... We're mature enough to receive that as a growing opportunity. Amen? Yeah. Because we've been unjust, we actually deserve justice. Verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, 
you will be judged, and with the same, or I'm sorry, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So justice in this matter will be determined by the injustice we show. So we get to actually set the standard of judgment for ourselves based upon how we treat other people. We might say that the equal opposite will be divvied out to us. An equal amount of justice to our injustice will be reciprocated. Okay? That's interesting. That God would allow us, at least in this context, to determine for ourselves how we're going to be dealt with. So it's up to you. It's up to you. Yeah. How much judgment will be passed? Standard. Man. The things that God sees that we don't think he sees. So I actually appreciate <clears throat> Jesus' warning. This, it, it's a deterrent that calls attention to the necessity of our humility to love and to be patient toward other people that are not like us. Not like us. Yeah. So with that, it's not a call to you know, overlook unrepentant sin or to overlook ungodly behavior. This is a call to lovingly, patiently, humbly, with investigation, give people the benefit of the doubt, to withhold judgment until a sufficient number of facts are on the table, okay? Um, like when we select leaders, we spend a lot of time looking, praying, asking questions before we judge them as qualified or disqualified. And, and you want me to do that, right? You don't want just any Yahoo um, opening the scriptures and presenting them to you or coming to you bedside when you're sick at the hospital ministering to your children, uh, doing those sorts of things. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Verse three and four. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Now don't miss the tone or the disposition of the person who Jesus is describing, okay? This person looks at petty things in other people with disgust. And in a condescending fashion, they offer to help their neighbor. Like, and they make a point to show how they're stooping to your level. That's what Jesus is talking about. All the while ignoring their own sin and their self-righteousness. These two verses address our self-righteous tendency to tolerate sin in our own lives, even as we remain keen to the presence of lesser sins in the lives of others. So we stare, we glare, we whisper and complain or gossip until for some of us, our self-righteousness can bear it no longer. So we have to say something to the person to deliver them from this wretched thing that drives us nuts. Not because we care about the person. It's just that whatever they do, however they are, irritates our self-righteousness, and so we spill over. These people demagnify their own sins while magnifying the sins of others. Now, Jesus refers to a speck, which is a tiny sliver at best, and to a plank, which was the larger logs used to, in Israeli homes in, the, in the, the hot climate to both secure the ceiling and to make a floor for the second level. So he's talking about floor joists, floor joists. One's a sliver, one's a floor joist. And he says, why do you look at the sliver in your neighbor's eye and pay no attention to the floor joist in your own eye? Or how can you address the sliver in their eye when a floor joist is lodged in your own eye? How can you see anything past such a thing? 
Now, I like putting these two verses together because it addresses the two kinds of people. Verse 3 addresses those who look at the sins of others, who just look at the sins of others, while verse 4 addresses those who are vocal about the sins of others. Yeah. Some of us do not have the courage to confront people in their sin, but we do have the arrogance to stare at their sin, to criticize them in our hearts, to despise them in our hearts, and maybe even to point out to others the problems that that person has from our morally elevated position, right? But there are others who have both the courage and the arrogance to confront others for their petty sins, all the while carefully, quietly concealing their own sins behind their back and, of course, from higher moral ground. This stuff is just oozing with human arrogance. And Jesus has a great word for those who do this. In these verses, he's asked why and how someone could do this. And now he explains. He says they're a hypocrite. And he says, first remove the floor joist from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the sliver from your brother's eye. Hypocrite. Hypocrites. Uh, in the Greek, it's a, he's saying that they're a counterfeit. It's one who speaks and acts under fiend, feigned character. The one who harbors sin, but takes it upon themselves to point out everyone else's sin. This is the same kind of person that's actually rebuked in verse 1, who is unjustly critical of others while giving themselves a pass. Yeah. Jesus instructs the hypocrite to first repent, that is, by getting the sin away from you, out of your life, so that they can then hum, uh, humbly, with a good conscience, help others repent of sin. You know, it's, as you know, it's pretty disgusting when someone who is, you know, living in unrepentant sin confronts someone else for sinning, especially when their sin is more grievous. We hate that. But it really is a beautiful thing when someone has overcome grievous sin and then they humbly try to help others who are struggling in sin. Isn't that sweet? I love it. They've experienced themselves the deception of sin, the draw of sin, the power of sin, but they've also experienced the grace of God which, ge- which gave them victory over sin. And once free from sin, they're now eager to help others gain their freedom. It's a different coming from them. It doesn't mean that it's always automatically received, but it's different, especially if that other person is aware of the sin of the con- confronter. Yeah. But there are some dangers involved when helping sinners. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. What is he talking about? And why has he inserted this saying at this place in the context? Well, Jesus obviously is not talking about literal dogs or literal pigs, but what they do literally. He's not talking about what is literally holy, like we might say an offering to God. He's not talking about literal pearls, but what pearls are to people. They're precious. They're valuable. Jesus is saying here that just as we wouldn't do one thing in a particular context, like giving something precious to an uncaring or even dangerous animal, we should not do similar things in another context. Now, in Israel, dogs were lowly esteemed, and they were viewed very negatively by the Jews, okay, as they prowled their cities, scrounging and competing for food. They didn't like the dogs. 
Pigs were listed among the unclean animals. Good Jews did not keep pigs, and they certainly did not eat them. Pigs are the ultimate scavenger. The ultimate scavenger. And like pigs, or like dogs, pigs do not appreciate good things. They just either abuse them or they devour them. And so we withhold, we protect sacred things from them. And there are actually times where dogs and hogs do more than just abuse the good things that are given to them. They turn on the ones who give them things. Dogs have been known to bite the hand that feeds them. Pigs have been known to eat the hand that feeds them. Okay, Uh, Pigs, man. More than one body has been disposed of in a pig pen. Okay, Uh, The old saying, whatever happened to the pig farmer? He got too close to his pigs. Okay. They will eat anything and all of it. When I first raised pigs in Boise, I just couldn't believe it. If they can get their nose under it, they can lift it. They can destroy it. You know? And uh, one day I, I realized that we were missing a chicken. And I, I thought for sure that a, a coyote, a fox, a raccoon, something had gotten it. But no, our pig had gotten it. And he ate everything. The beak, the feet, the feathers, everything. It was gross. But they taste so good. I don't know what it is. Yeah. They don't just abuse. They can, they can trample and destroy. My uh, uncle, who's a rancher in Wyoming, uh, the only time I ever saw him get angry and scared was when I, as a little boy, was in the pig pen with large pigs. And I was chasing the younger ones. And I didn't realize uh, what it was doing to the older ones. And uh, so he come leaping over the fence, and he yarded me out of the pen, and uh, he knew that my days were numbered in that pen. Very dangerous. So, but Jesus isn't really talking about dogs and hogs, is he? He's talking about certain kinds of people who are like dogs and hogs. And because people can be like dogs and hogs, we should not give to them what is holy, what is sacred or precious, because they will mistreat it. And in some cases, they will turn on those who offer those good things to them. So Jesus is saying, just as we should not take what is sacred and give it to a pack of dogs or give pearls to, you know, swine, we should not give what is sacred to a person who we know will just abuse it or abuse us. That's clear enough, but how do we know someone is a dog or a hog? And what is it in the context that is holy? What does he mean by pearls? Let me, let me cover that first. In keeping with the immediate context, because context is king, right? Say amen. Context is king. All right. The, identi- the identity of the pearls and of what is holy must be the help that is offered to a sinner. It must be in the context, because that is what this is all about. Okay. And so after we ourselves have repented of our sin and we've removed the plank from our eye, Jesus says it is for us to help others, he said in a verse before, with whatever they may have in their eye, to come alongside them and help lead them to freedom. You guys, that help is like a pearl. It, it is precious to the one who receives it, and from God's perspective, our ministry to others is holy. As Paul says, it's a sweet-smelling aroma that's well-pleasing to the Lord. It's a pearl. How many of you guys have been helped by someone who deeply cares for you and they help you along the way out of a serious struggle, especially with sin? And how precious was that to you? How precious and how vulnerable was that person when they came to you and said something like, I know where you're at right now. I know how difficult this sin can be. 
But listen, I have experienced the grace of God and I have walked in freedom with him and I want to help you do that. And they come alongside you. They sacrifice their time, their efforts, and they walk with you until you experience freedom. Isn't that precious? That is holy to God. That's, those are pearls. So the question is, how do we determine if someone is a dog or a hog? I'm almost done. I'm almost done. We have to make a judgment. We have to make a judgment, but not unjust judgment, as Jesus warns in verse 1, but righteous judgment as he expects from us in John 7, 24. Well, how do we do that? Well, sometimes it's not about who someone is, but whether or not they are ready for someone to help them. You guys, we've known people in sin, they're just not ready to be confronted. Not enough work has been done by the Holy Spirit yet in their heart. They haven't received enough work. The, the, the soil has not been prepped for a one-on-one confrontation. So if you, th- if you go to them at that point, they'll abuse you, okay? So hold off a bit. If they're not hurting other people, maybe, maybe just wait. At one moment, they might bite your head off, but later on, they may receive it. They might appreciate it, yeah. But for other people, they, they may never be ready because they're, they're too resistant. They're, they're too mean. They're too hateful. Maybe, maybe they're even dangerous, and they have to be just turned over to the Holy Spirit. And, and by the way, he's far better at it than you are anyway. Okay? Uh, in John 7, 7, Jesus said that the world hated him because he testified that its deeds were evil. What did they do to him for it? They crucified him. Stephen learned exactly how dangerous people can be when he confronted their sin. Uh, they stoned him for it, Acts chapter 7. Paul, it appears after the incident with Stephen, that he was given over to the Holy Spirit. We don't see people going out of their way to preach the gospel to Paul. We see people getting out of his way, okay? It, it appears that they, they just left him to the Holy Spirit, and then it was Jesus that brought Paul to his knees. Praise God, right? Yeah. If we try to help a brother or sister secure freedom from sin and they bite us for it, we can back off a little bit, okay? Be wise about your timing. Pray for them. And when it comes to sharing the gospel with the world, you know, sometimes there's nothing wrong with getting bit a little before you move on to the next person. Get some exposure. It's good to be bit. You can get used to it that way and you can tolerate a little more. But you've got to exercise wisdom. But if someone is resistant, rude, and mean, don't sweat it. Just move on. If you detect that you're wrestling with dogs and hogs, it may be time to get out. Okay? You know, Jesus is the one that told us not to do that. And he told his disciples, when you go to a city and they do not receive you, What did he say? Dust your feet off and go to the next city. Don't stop preaching. Just move on. Okay. All right. I got to get you out of here. Real quick in review. We're called to confront sin. We're called to. It's Christian responsibility, but we must be repentant ourselves. Okay. We have to be humble. We're called to judge sin, but we must do that humbly. We must also be careful with what is holy, what is precious, so that we do not allow some to desecrate what that is. And then also embedded in all of this is if you are the person being confronted, be humble. Somebody is offering something to you that is precious. And even if they are a hypocrite, and it's true about you that you're a sinner, don't throw it in their face. Just say, I think the Lord sent that to me, even from a hypocrite. If, if the shoe fits, wear it. And then go repent, confess your sins. Amen? Okay, real quick about baptism. You guys know that the world is bullying people in the faith. They're ganging up on us. So how much more precious to have the body of Christ gather around those that are getting baptized and, and, and saying, I, I belong to this body. I belong to Christ and not the word. I say that, I'm encouraging you to grab your umbrella, 
grab your rain jacket, grab your scuba gear, and come out and just encourage those that are getting baptized. Amen? Go ahead and stand up. If you can't make it, I understand. If you can and you don't come, we're going to judge you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, nobody understands human psychology like you do. In fact, I don't think we understand human psychology. And that's why you've given us your word. Lord, this whole section is a call to humility, to repentance. So Lord, I pray that as we, as individuals in this body, as we continue to sin, that we would, we would be humble enough to receive correction, confrontation. And those of us, Lord, that may be in a position to address sin, help us to be humble, help us to be repentant ourselves, and help us to go to one sinner coming from another sinner. Lord, we are on the same level playing field. And so help us to be gracious to one another, Lord, in giving and receiving in the context of sin. Grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.